in John, and then we are finishing up John here in the next two weeks. Uh, this week we are looking at the last um, little section there, saving the last two verses for next week, but we're actually incorporating the next two verses into an overview of the whole Gospel of John, just reminding ourselves of what we've seen as we've walked through it, what the major themes were, what the major points were. So that will be next week wrapping it up. So this week is kind of like the final text version of just looking at how John begins to wrap up his gospel. And if you remember, this really flows out of where we were last week. And this is the moment where Jesus comes to Peter and he, really all the disciples, they were out fishing. But specifically last week, we see where he engages Peter in this conversation um, it was around a charcoal fire, which is, again, very um, apropos because that was what he mentioned that Peter was around when he denied Jesus three times, that it was around a charcoal fire. John mentions that as he comes off of the boat into the water, swimming up to the shore, that there again was a charcoal fire, um, that Jesus had been preparing a meal for them, breakfast, and he's feeding them. He feeds them. And that imagery is something that you need to pay attention to because the imagery is exactly what flows into what Jesus asked Peter to do. After feeding them and filling their bellies, he re-engages Peter in a conversation and he says, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, you know I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. And it's interesting because that's just, that's what he just did. He was just feeding his disciples. Now, if you remember, if you go back earlier in the gospel of John, Jesus referred to his disciples as sheep. He actually talked about the ones that God had entrusted to him and that he had kept them and that Jesus's intentions for the sheep was to take care of them and to nurture them and to feed them and protect them. And so in essence, it's almost like when someone has failed miserably uh, we have one of two temptations as humans, and that is to berate them in their failure or to encourage them to get up and do what they were created to do. And I think that's the beautiful picture of what you see there. Jesus doesn't just sweep Peter's denial under the rug. He brings it up, but he doesn't bring it up in such a way that he is berating him. He doesn't say, where's my apology, Peter? He doesn't say, you know, I was right. I told you what you were going to do, and you told me you weren't going to do it. Who was right, Peter? He doesn't say anything like that. But what he does is he brings up that moment, but then he reminds Peter, this is what you're called to do. Remember, I'm calling you to do the same thing that I've done for others. And that's really how that whole passage went last week, and it kind of flows into where we are this week. Now again, some of the themes, some of the imagery that you have there, you have to remember what's going on. You have to remember that this is the way that Jesus is engaging Peter. You have to remember the words that he said like, uh, do you love me more than these, being the disciples around him. And not, he's not saying, do you love me more than you love the other disciples. He's saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me. And there was intentionality in that because Peter, in his arrogance and his boastfulness, was known for declaring that he was much more loyal to Jesus than anyone else. I would die for you. I would go to prison for you. I would never, ever betray you. So it's almost like he was always leveling up his love, his allegiance, much higher than anyone's. One of these guys might betray you, but it won't be me. Why? Because no one's love for you compares to mine. That's the kind of things that he was known for saying. 
So when that loyalty, when that boastfulness, that pride failed him in that moment there in the courtyard where before a servant girl he denied he knew Jesus, before commoners he denied he knew Jesus, now all of a sudden Jesus brings it up again by saying, do you love me really more than they love me? Let's, let's begin. And, and, and really what is Jesus doing but he's creating a comparison. Now he's not creating a comparison to say, Peter, you need to make sure your love for me is greater than these. What he's trying to do is show Peter, you know what, you've really been living your whole life comparing yourself to other people. You've been comparing yourself to how much someone else loves. You've been comparing yourself to how loyal someone else is. You've been comparing yourself to how good someone else has had it versus you. And and you know what, that's a real temptation for all of us, isn't it? To live our lives looking at other people. And a lot of times that begins to affect our relationship with God. We begin to look at other people's situation and say, well, God, I've, I've been loyal to you. And yet, that guy, look at what he has. Look at what he enjoys. Look at his health. Look at his finances. Look at his family. Look at his job. Look at his situation. Why is he more loved, more favored than I am? Or we could do the opposite of that. Well, surely God loves me. Because look at that guy. Look at his family. I mean, I might have a couple of bad kids, but his whole family's bad, you know. Or or, or I may make a few unethical decisions, but that guy's unethical to the core. You know, and so we we spend our lives comparing ourselves to others, and, and we do so depending on what we feel like we need. If we feel like we need a boost, we find somebody lower than us to compare ourselves with. But if we want to have a pity party, we find someone better than us in a better situation to compare ourselves to, to say, God, this isn't fair. You're not being fair with the way that you're treating other people. You're not being fair in the way that you treat me because I am more loyal. I am more dedicated. I have given up more. I love you more than these people do. And it's like he rallies around this moment. He says, do you really? Do you really Love me more than these? In other words, uh, how are you defining love? Uh, What is the qualifications? And what we get from last week is, obviously the way Peter was thinking about love and devotion is much different than the way Jesus was thinking about it. And this flows into our passage this week. Now, if you remember last week, it ends with this words of follow me. Um, Those are significant words in the Gospels, follow me. Now, again, when you look at the text, it seems that Jesus is just saying, hey, follow me a little bit further. Okay, So in other words, he's been talking to everyone in a group. He's been talking to them as a, as a group of disciples. They've all been gathered around. Everyone's hearing what he's saying to Peter. But it's like Jesus wants to have this personal conversation with Peter. And so he says to him, hey, Peter, walk with me a little further. Walk with me away from the group. Let's, let's walk and have a conversation on the beach. Let's talk about your love. Let's talk about your dedication. Let's talk about what it is that you're going to do and what it is I'm calling you to do. And so that kind of flows into the passage that we have. It wasn't necessarily that Jesus was reiterating the follow me call when Peter was just a fisherman. But at the same time, you can't deny that that's there because Jesus waited for them to go back to Galilee. He waited for them to get on a boat and start fishing. He waited for them to catch absolutely nothing, which is exactly the same scenario when he walked up to them and said, you come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. 
So I think that there is both and. In other words, he was saying, come follow me a little further. He wasn't reinstating him at that moment. He wasn't recalling him at that moment. But I think John reminds us of those words because there is that similarity between those circumstances. And then you're going to see in our passage, he's going to reiterate the following again. So let's begin looking at verse 20 of chapter 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Okay, so here's the picture again. They've had this whole exchange. Do you love me more than these? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Three times. And then he says exactly how he's going to die. You know, when you were young, you used to do whatever you wanted to do. You went where you wanted to. When you were older, uh, people were going to dress you, and you're going to have to go to a place where you don't want to go. And he says that because that's the manner in which he was going to glorify God in his death. And then it says at the end, follow me. So he says all of this. All the disciples hear this, and they're like, whoa. And then, so he starts following, and him and Jesus start walking. Well, then Peter turns, and there's John, the beloved disciple. There he is. He's following along. Now, why is he following along? Is he like a creeper? I mean, is he like the guy on Facebook that just follows everybody? I mean, we don't know exactly why John is following. It could be that he was just going for a walk, or it could be just the way that conversation ended. It wasn't incredibly clear that Jesus was saying, just to Peter, follow me. Maybe he was saying, follow me, and he turns and walks. And so John's like, I want to go with Jesus wherever he goes. And so he starts following them as well. And then Peter turns, and of course, Peter's processing all this information about when you are older, you will not dress yourself. You will be led to a place you don't want to go. And Peter's kind of imaging that and understanding and going, what, what does this mean? Is this my punishment? Am I being, is this my, what happens to me because I denied Christ? I don't know what's going in in Peter's mind, but obviously he's processing things because he turns and he looks at John who's following them and he draws attention to him. And look at what he says there. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You Follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So what I want to do do today is a little bit odd. I want to start with the last verse and work our way backwards. Uh, we're really not backwards, so I want to just cover the last verse first because it kind of gives us a little bit of context. If you look at verse 23, um, I think this is John probably putting this at the end of his gospel to clear up some confusion. Now, the reason I say that is because what is mentioned there in verse 23, he gives us insight into the fact that some myth, some rumor had started that Jesus at some point declared that John was never going to die. That this apostle John, that when he said this to Peter, that what Jesus was saying was that John's never going to die. He's never going to die. He's going to be alive until I return. He'll never experience death. Now, again, you have to remember when the gospel of John is written. It's the last one to be written. It's written well after many significant events. Most likely he's 
writing after the destruction of the temple. He's definitely writing after the death of Paul. He's writing after the death of Peter. So in other words, when he's referring back to Peter's death, this is stuff that's already happened. And John's talking about these things. And more than likely, John is nearing the end of his life. Now, John had some spectacular things. And we don't you know how, how valid all of these truths are, but church, church history tells us at one point that he was, by one of the Roman emperors, declared to be um, executed. And he was to be executed by being dipped in boiling oil. And they took him and they strapped him to the end of it. And they, they dipped him in with the stick and put his whole body in this boiling oil. And they brought it back up and he was completely alive, untouched, unfettered, nothing wrong with him. Now, that, that's what church history tells us happened. Now, if that happened... You can imagine how this really gained some life, okay? So maybe at the beginning they were like, I wonder if it means that John's going to live forever. And after you see a man come out of boiling water, like, yep, he's going to live forever. I mean, that guy's not going to die. And so again, the myth begins to grow. Well, now John's coming towards the end of his life, and John doesn't feel like that's what Jesus said. And so I believe that part of this is a pastor's heart. As he's finished his gospel, he's also talking about some things that he knows that's going on in the church. And he's clarifying, listen, when I die, I don't want your faith to be shattered. I want you to understand, Jesus never said that I was never going to die. He said this in a context of what he was actually trying to bring up and point out to Peter. I was not the focus of that context. Peter was the focus of the context. And so in essence, what John is trying to help us to say is when Jesus says to him, what if I have him remain until I come back? What is that to you? It's like when I talk to my kids and I have this conversation almost daily. When I say, hey, go pick up your clothes. What about him? What about him? What if I want him to fly to the moon while you're picking up your clothes? What does that matter? I asked you to pick up your clothes. You ever had that conversation? Okay. Yeah, if you nod your head, that means you have kids. Okay. You have ki if you have kids, you've had that conversation. So I think John is saying that that's the, the context of what Jesus was saying there. He wasn't saying, what if I want this guy to live for? This guy's going to live forever and you're not going to live forever. No, that's not it. Jesus was focusing in on Peter why do you keep comparing yourself to other people? Now, the reason we know this is because think about how the other text that we studied last week ended. Or really how it kind of began. And even how this text begins. Uh, there's this picture that Peter is constantly comparing himself. Remember how Jesus started the whole conversation. Peter, do you love me more than these? Because you've been comparing yourself to them. So do you want to keep that comparison going? No, I don't think I want to. Well, you made some bold statements back there. You didn't live up to them. But see, that's the thing, Peter, is you keep comparing yourself to other people. And what happens after that? They're walking away, and he's like, well, what about him? He's still comparing himself to other people at this point. So I think John partly is, as a good pastor, being a pastor of a church, being a pastor of the early church, he is trying to clear up some confusion to help people understand that he is just not going to live forever. That's not what Jesus meant by that. Now, again, follow me, significant 
and insignificant at the same time. It's a follow me a little bit further, but when Jesus reintroduces it this next time, I believe it does have that weight of another calling or a reminder back to what he called him to in the very beginning. Don't you remember you were a fisherman? Don't remember your life was going nowhere? You didn't make it through the Jewish educational system? And I called you, I called you out of just fishing for fish, and I made you a fisher of men. I called you out of the mundane task of going out and fishing all night long and catching nothing, and I opened your eyes to a spiritual reality that's all around you. I help reconnect you to why you were created. I help you to understand who really formed you and who has a plan for you and how God wants to use you. I pointed you back to the heart of the Father. Do you remember that? Well, all of that is contingent on you following me. Follow me. Don't follow John. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your emotions. Don't always let your conscience be your guide. Follow me, is what he's saying there. Let's look at verse 20 again. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So I think it's interesting here that John mentions the Last Supper. And I believe that that context is very important. Here's why I think that's important. Now again, I I could be wrong on this. The text isn't super clear. But I do think there's a connection. If you think about it, up until the Last Supper, when Jesus shared this time with his disciples, the paths of all the disciples were pretty much the same. They followed Jesus day in and day out, all together as a group. They watched him. Whenever he told them to go do something, they did it, and oftentimes they did it as a group. There were times that he sent them out, but he sent them out in smaller groups. And they came back and they reported and they followed him again. So every day was pretty much the same for all of them. They were hearing the same message. They were doing the same activities. They were in the same places. But something happened the night that Jesus shared a Passover meal with them. It became the beginning of the end of the way they had followed Jesus up to that point. We even talked about the significance of after the resurrection, it was um, the doubting Thomas. I call him believing Thomas. You know, when when he really sees Jesus and realizes the resurrected Lord and his power, we know from church history that he goes to India. None of the rest of the disciples do, but he goes and spends his time in India taking the gospel to the furthest reaches. They all really start going in different directions. Some of them hang out there near Jerusalem, but many of them go off in other directions. Their lives are never, ever the same again after that Passover meal. Yes, they all went to the garden, but that was where they were split up. Yes, they came together for a moment afterwards, but that's where Jesus reappeared to them. And after Jesus' time with them, he said, you are going to go into all the world. So so it's not you as a group anymore. You're not going to follow me as a contingent. You are now responsible for the individual mission and vision that God will give to each one of you, and you've got to be faithful with what's been given to you. You have to steward what's been given to you. It's not a group anymore. So I think it's John reminding us that at that last supper, that was the last really tight moment that they had with Jesus before 
all hell broke loose in the sense of Jesus' crucifixion and, and, and his arrest and, and his death and everything just went in chaos and it seemed like hell was reigning over their lives. And then, of course, all of that with the resurrection, it burns away and now there's, there's a delightment but also confusion of, 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 of we're coming back or are we now going to follow Jesus? Is Jesus going to start doing the same things he did before? Or is there something different here? Are we about to set up a I don't really, what does this mean? What does the resurrection mean? I mean, what's life going to be like now? Are we about to go unseat Rome from the promised land, or, or, or are we going to defeat the nations? Is, is he going to bring every ruler on earth under his rule? What, what's going to happen? And so there's probably confusion in their minds as well as delight. And what Jesus begins to say to them over this time period before he ascends into heaven is he reassures them that, listen, this is what's before you. It's still going to be difficult. Just as they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Just as they hated me, they're going to hate you. But you're going to go into all the world, and you're going to take this gospel with you. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to do the work of the will of God. And so at this moment, I think John bringing up the Last Supper is significant because it reminds them that as their paths have all been the same thus far, now their paths are going to diverge in different directions. Look at verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Again, our temptation is to focus on someone else in our search for fairness. So when we feel like God has shortchanged us, we have to somehow validate that. And the way we validate that is by saying, Lord, okay, look at this guy. Look at what they had to do or what they didn't have to do. Or look at the way they followed or didn't follow. Or look at what they've sacrificed or didn't sacrifice. Or look at the path that they've had. Or look how easy it was for them or how hard. You know, whatever it may be, we want to find someone to validate our declaration that God is somehow unfair. But what we're reminded of by Jesus' words here is this. Following is following regardless of where it takes you. Following is not based on the destination. Following is based on where you are right now. You know, if I say, hey, I want you to follow me to somewhere, my indication to you isn't go in your, get in your car and drive there and beat me there. The, the indication of following is we're going somewhere, but what I want you to do is to stay behind me as we go there. In other words, I want you to follow, to mimic me, to see what I do, to take the same path that I'm going to take. If I say to someone in my car, hey, follow me, I'll show you exactly where it is. I'm not saying to you, hey, that's the destination and follow me if you want to or if you want to use your own logic or GPS, then feel free to do that. That's not the indication. The indication is stay right with me. Stay right behind me. Don't lose sight of me. Don't get too far back. Remember, Peter's life and his devotion really fell apart. Luke is the one who encapsulates it the best. And in Luke, he says that Peter, before he denied Jesus, was following him at a distance. At a distance. You know, a lot of people would, in those moments, think, that, that's good thinking, Peter. You know, following from a distance, you can kind of keep an eye on him, but not too close. Because if you get too close, you get connected. You get too close, you get branded. That's a zealot. He's one of them. But if you follow him from a distance, you can kind of keep an eye on where he is, but 
You don't have to get so associated that you get branded. You know, here's the thing. You follow Jesus from a distance, you'll deny him every time. But if you follow him closely, you will die with him gladly. And that really is the difficulty that Peter experienced. You can't follow Jesus from a distance. You have to follow him closely. And that's the indication. Follow me. Follow me. Stay with me. Walk with me. Listen to me. Following is this invitation to a relationship. Following is this invitation into community. Following is this invitation into a conversation, into uh, enlightenment, into knowledge, into the divine. It's God inviting us into a relationship to understand why we were created, to understand the power that is ours through the Holy Spirit. Not to do what we want to do or not to follow our own motives or to build our own kingdom. It's the power that is given to us to live out why we were created in the beginning. And that is to be a follower. Following requires a relationship. Following requires devotion. Following requires deference. Following requires a common goal, but it does not require an agreement on a common path to that goal. Did you hear what I said? Following does require a common goal, the kingdom of God. But here's what following doesn't require, agreement on the path to that goal. Here's what I mean. Jesus says, it's about my kingdom. And here's where I want you to go. And I look at it and go, Jesus, I'm all about your kingdom. But from where I'm standing, this path over here makes a whole lot more sense. Still going in the same direction. That way you're talking about looks really hard. That looks daunting. That looks difficult. That looks unrewarding. That looks tiresome. I like this route. So, Lord, I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket. And all you got to do is help me to win one of those. Okay, there's two of them. You got a choice. Which one do you want to give me right now? The Powerball or the Super Millions? Okay, or whatever it's called. Me- Mega Millions or whatever it is. So, so I'm going to buy two lottery tickets. Well, you can pick whichever one you want. It's up to you. It's your, it's your leading. This one or this one. And then once I have that money, I can accomplish all of your will. I can do all these things. I can make your kingdom come. Do you see what I'm saying there? So a common goal is important. But agreement on that common path to the goal isn't important. There's only one that matters, and that's his path. And the only way to know his path is to follow him. To follow him through the valley of the shadow of death. To follow him through the difficulty. To follow him through the brokenness of this world. The disappointment of relationships. The abandonment that loved ones will sometimes allow us to experience. It's in those moments that God is refining us. And he helps us to realize that the whole kingdom of God isn't just about accomplishing something. It's just as much about the journey to that accomplishment. Because it's in that journey that we are refined. It's in that journey that we are being made into the image of Christ. So it's not just the the, kingdom of God. It's about how we get to the kingdom of God. And that can only be found by following Jesus. Look what he says in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
you follow me. And this reminds me of this truth. Followship does not come with guarantees. It's about obedience. Followership doesn't say, hey, if you follow me, listen, I promise it's going to be a good life. Hey, listen, if you follow me, you're going to be happy all the days of your life. And this really is, sadly, a lie that the church presented for a long time through evangelism. It was at evangelistic rallies and at churches on Sunday mornings that we said to people over and over again, if you just accept Jesus as your Lord, your life will get better. If you accept Jesus in your Lord, you will find the happiness that you're seeking. And, and, you know, part of that is true, but the problem was we put it out there as a bait around a hook that we did not reveal to them was there. And the hook is this. It's not going to be easy. Yes, you can find happiness in following Jesus. And yes, Jesus does want you to be happy, but what he's more concerned about is you being holy. And when holiness becomes your pursuit, happiness just becomes a byproduct of holiness. It's kind of like marriage. I always tell people in pre-marriage counseling, of course I've told you this before, that I feel like my goal in pre-marriage counseling is to talk the people out of it. Okay, It's not to tell you, okay, here, here's going to... Because here's the thing, I think too many people say to couples, man, marriage is so awesome, it's so great, it's beautiful. She's meeting each other's needs all the time, she's taking care of yours, and you're taking care of hers, it's just beautiful. No, it's not. It's two selfish people that start, start to share things. That is a recipe for disaster right there, okay? And so I feel like it's my responsibility to tell them, okay, listen, listen, marriage was never intended to make you happy. It was intended to make you miserable. Misery loves company, and that's why God created marriage. Okay, now here's the thing. I, of course, I'm being a little bit facetious about that, but I, I am saying this. Any of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. You, you may have a great relationship right now, but you did it through peril at some point in time. You did it at some point in time. You came to the end of yourself, and you just said, God, you got to do something. You gotta, I mean, I, I can remember you know, very literally praying, God, it's got to be me or her. One of us got to die. Okay, you got to take one of them. I'm glad I'll raise my hand, but we, this ain't going to work. Okay? You got to take one of us. And, um, you know, the picture there is that I've come to the conclusion of through a lot of marriage counseling and living through marriage myself is this. Happiness is not a product of marriage. And we need to tell people that. Marriage does not make you happy. But conflict that marriage will indelibly bring about, handled well, can have joy and happiness as a byproduct. Do you know the difference of a product and a byproduct, right? So a product is something you produce, and a byproduct is something that you get out of whatever it is, the process of producing something. It's something that's produced on the side of, of this other thing. So marriage produces conflict. But conflict handled well produces happiness. Do you see what I'm talking about? And so that's the same thing. And I think marriage, the reason I hold that up as an example is because following Jesus is the same thing. And I think the church has said for so long, oh, it's so great following Jesus. Your life's so much better. You have a purpose. You have a plan. You don't worry about things in life anymore. That's bull. 
That is not the way it starts. That's not the way it happens. That's not the path that you walk forward. There's questions. There's disappointment. There's disillusionment. There are times when you feel like, I don't even know if I'm really saved or not. I thought I was saved. I thought I gave my life to Christ, but now I don't know. And there's this war within you of these passions that you still have from your lost person. You thought, I thought that person was dead. What happened to this new person? And the, when you first started following Jesus, you were excited about this. But now after following for a while, you're not excited about those same things anymore. And then you begin to question yourself. And so there's all this conflict within your soul. But that conflict handled well can produce incredible followership. Because it brings it back to the moment of understanding, you know what, Jesus, I'm following you not because of what you can do for me, because of what you've already done. And I don't know what my life has before me, but one thing I've learned is I can trust you. And I'm going to trust you whether I see it or not, whether I agree on the path forward or not. That, my friends, is followership. Think about this. Think about if this moment, if we had started denominations back then, that as they walked away from this moment with Jesus on the beach, they would have had this moment of creating two new denominations. There would have been the Simonites, the ones who followed Peter, and you would have had the Johnites. And this would have been their theologies. The Simonites would be preaching, God calls you to die. And the Johnites would say, God calls you to live. Do you see the difference in those two? Hey, he said, hey, you're going to die. What about him? Hey, what if he lives until the very end? What's that to you? And they walk away going, well, Jesus calls us to live. He goes, no, Jesus calls us to die. No, neither one of those is true. The truth is, whatever God calls you to do, you do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you forget what he's told anybody else to do. That's the point of what Jesus is trying to get across. Our paths are not going to be the same. You're not going to be able to compare your life to someone else and say, well, am I holy? Well, yes, look, he's doing the same things I am, so I must be holy. No, because you don't know what God's called him to do. You don't know where he is in his journey. You don't know if he's on the upswing or the downswing. You don't know if he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death or he's standing on the hill of Mount Zion. You don't know where he is in his journey. Therefore, you can't compare yourself to others. You can only look squarely at the face of Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you today. I need you to show me the path forward. I need you to show me how I can be faithful. I need you to empower me for what you've called me to do. And so whatever it is that day, you surrender that to the power of God. I think Paul picks up on this beautifully in writing in Colossians chapter 3 verse 22. He reminds the church in Colossae, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of, what does he say? Eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing who? The Lord. Again, Paul's calling us to squarely focus on one thing, our relationship with God. Look how he continues. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for them. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ, Jesus. What does that mean? It means when you're doing your job and no one else is looking, how do you do your job? It reveals where your heart is looking for its reward. You know, if you only work for the accolades of other people, it tells you where you're getting your joy. 
And if it's in work or if it's in marriage or if it's in parenting, if you can only get joy when the accolades are coming from another human being, you're going to spend a lot of time being miserable. But if you can refocus and say, Lord, I want my focus to be on you, then all of a sudden you can walk through difficulty. You can walk through a time where the husband or the wife or the kids are not honoring. And yet you can walk through it because you're focused not on the way they're thinking or treating you, but you're focused on how God has loved you and has been faithful to you. <clears throat> Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says to the church in Corinth, so wherever, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now the context of that is comparison. Because Paul was talking about people who were like, well, we eat this and they eat that. Oh, well, we drink this and they drink that. They, they abstain from this kind of drink, but these people indulge in it. These people abstain from this kind of meat, but these people indulge in it. And so who's right, Paul? Who's supposed to do what? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to eat and drink? He's like, you're focused on the wrong thing. What you eat and what you drink doesn't make you holy. What you eat or drink is not what makes you happy, regardless of what you think. What makes you happy, what makes you holy, is being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and keeping your eyes focused on him. And you know what? Then whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. Whatever it is you eat, whatever it is you drink, wherever it is you find yourself, you work for one thing, one audience, one person to please, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget how Jesus was referring to the manner of which Peter was going to die. When he got to the end of that, he didn't say, Peter, because you've messed up, I've changed the end of your story. You aren't going to have to die like this, but now that you've denied me, I've, I've erased the end of your story and I rewrote it. And it's going to be nasty. <laughs> You're going to suffer. Does that sound like what Jesus said? No. He said, John actually tells us, the reason Jesus told him, he told him in what manner he was going to, what? Glorify God. He said, Peter, this is the manner in which you are to glorify God. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Peter's the same guy who said, I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. Peter, you're going to die for me. Wait a minute, Jesus. Now, what, 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 what are you talking about? What, what about this guy? You know, it's, it's amazing when, when, when it's not actually out there how bold we can be. And when the reality sets forward and it's right there, then it's like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. What? Are, are you serious? Well, what about everybody else? Is it just me? I'm the only one that has to do this? Is this because of what I did? Is this because of what I said? Is this because of... No. This is because of the glory of God. And you know what? What's amazing about this is really how John brings this to a close. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. That all of this in Peter's mind, he's, he's really struggling with this. And, and the truth is John doesn't give us any closure to Peter's thoughts. In the Gospel of John, Peter never says, you know what, Lord, I submit to your will. You know what, Lord, I'm sorry, and you know what, you're right. I just need to trust you with my life. He never says that, ever, in the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, it's left open-ended. But before we consider that, I want to point out one other thing. 
I'm sure Peter was thinking that some of what Jesus said was going to be his punishment because we often assign meaning to our circumstances, don't we? When things don't go right, yeah, that's the Lord getting me. I know. I, I know I should not have done this. I shouldn't have said that. I know I shouldn't have done that. I, I know I said I wasn't going to eat M&Ms anymore, and I ate some. That's just what the Lord's getting me for making this problem. You know, we assign meaning to circumstances. We often do it, and we do it over and over and over again. You know, we, we, we think God loves us or doesn't love us because of something we do. We think God loves someone or doesn't love someone depending on the circumstances they find themselves in. What happens when we assign meaning to circumstances is we assign meaning where meaning was never intended. And what happens is it begins to affect the way we see ourselves or it begins to affect the way that we see whoever put that on us. In this situation, it would be God. So what happens is we walk through a situation, it's very difficult, we assign meaning to the situation, we come to the conclusion God is not fair, God is not loving, God is not faithful, God is not strong, and it changes the way we feel about ourselves. I'm unloved, I'm unprotected, I'm unfavored, or it changes the way we feel about God. He's not strong enough, he doesn't see me, he doesn't love me, he doesn't care about me. Now I'm going to tell you a funny story. But I'm gonna, I think you'll get the idea. Uh, this was actually a, a, a friend of mine who creates pottery. And uh, as he creates the pottery, he would tell stories. And one time he, he was telling this, we, when I was a youth minister, we had him come to the church and, and, um, and do this thing. And um, he was sharing the story, and I thought it was fascinating. And he said this, always stuck with me. And I don't know what it had to do with pottery, but anyway, he was just sharing the story. But he said him and his son were in New York City. And they were walking along. It's the first time they'd ever been to this big city. And they were just fascinated with all of the buildings because they come from like a rural area in Indiana. And he was just like, they were just all fascinated. It's big buildings and big cars and fancy cars and all these important people walking around dressed really nice and all these stores. And all of a sudden, they looked down the road and there was the biggest cow they'd ever seen walking down the streets of New York City. And it was just so out of place to him that he nudged his son. He said, son, look at that fat cow. Well, unbeknownst to him, there was a lady who was getting out of a taxi right in front of where he was instructing this to his son. And about the time she got out, she was a little overweight. She heard what this man said to her son, uh, to his son, and she said, well, I never... And she walked off, storming. See, she accepted meaning that was never intended for her. But she just assumed because of the circumstances and because of what she heard, this has to be about me. Now, again, any of us in that situation probably would have done the same thing. But I think you see what I'm talking about. Sometimes we accept condemnation that was never intended for us. Sometimes what God is allowing you to walk through is for your good and for his glory. It's for your refining. It's not your punishment. It's not him being mad at you. It's not him putting you through something because he doesn't like you. Everything God does for us, he does because he loves us. Why is it so important that we follow Jesus without looking at how everyone else is following Jesus? 
That's really the family discussion I want you to have today. Why is it so important that we follow Jesus without looking at how everyone else is following Jesus? Now, again, I'm not talking about discipleship here because discipleship is looking at, someone, at how someone else is following Jesus. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's one aspect. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when we look at the general population and we come to the conclusion, well, I'm as holy as anyone else out there that I can see. I mean, if we're going to rank people, I'm definitely in the upper 50%, not in the bottom 50%. Why is it important that we not do that when following after Jesus? We often compare ourselves to others. We compare both our faults and our blessings, and it usually brings us to the wrong conclusions. John leaves, like I was saying earlier, this whole scenario open-ended. We never know what Peter's response is here. It never allows us to hear what Peter said. It's like John leaves the gospel open-ended to say, I don't know, what would you do? How would you respond? What would you think? You see, I think the conclusion that John wants us to understand about Peter's life and about our own is this. God does not call us to outcomes. He calls us to obedience. God doesn't call me as a pastor to grow a large church. God doesn't call me to have the most baptisms in the state of Alabama. God doesn't call me to have the biggest buildings. God doesn't call me to have the most creative sermons. God doesn't call me to have the most fit staff, thankfully. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jab. Um, no, or, or, you know, the, you know, the ministry presence or knowledge or, or, or the influence in the world or in Christendom. You know, here's the thing. God doesn't call us to those things because if it was, that's all I would focus on. I would focus on how many baptisms I had. And you know what I would also do? I would focus on how I could trick you into getting baptized. Because if I do, that makes me look better, that makes me more successful, because this is what I'm qualifying myself by, so this is what's most important. But when I can dismiss all of that, now all of a sudden I can just come before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? How can I be faithful today? What is it you have for us today? And all of a sudden, the comparisons begin to drop off. Because if you start comparing yourself to everyone else in your business, in your school, in your athletics, then all of a sudden you live this miserable life where nothing is ever enough. But when you live in the confidence of a relationship with Jesus, all of a sudden, those things fall to the side. You live for something that's bigger than yourself because you realize it's not the outcome that you're living for. It's the obedience. It's to be found faithful. It's to be in that moment where you say, Lord, I am yours. Use me. And the only thing you live for is to hear one thing. When you walk into the next life and Jesus stands up off of his throne and says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. And that's about obedience. Obedience about what he's calling you to do. Obedience about what you're focused in on. Obedience about what you're living for. So the question is, what? are you living for? Let's pray. God, in the power of your Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would bring this loving conviction to our heart. 
Not a conviction that just leaves us in this puddled mess of thinking that we're unloved or unfavored. But the conviction that reminds us of we were saved for greater things than this. You died and purchased our lives to redeem us, to make us your own, to bring us into your family. And the desire that you have for us and the way you want to use us in this life has nothing to do with how the world values things and situations. Lord, help us to dismiss ourselves from the world's values, from the world's economy, from the world's strata of influence and popularity. Lord, let us learn to live in humility. Help us to learn whether it's a physical death or it's the more painful of dying every day to our will and our passions. Or that somehow you could be glorified in us. That somehow this life that you saved, that you brought from the dead, that you resurrected out of the ashes of sin and rebellion, that somehow it could again reflect your image. That it could live for your glory. And that it could benefit a kingdom that is far outside of ourselves. Lord, this can only happen with you. With you, Holy Spirit. With your purchase, Jesus. With your love, Father. Lord, may you have your way with the hearts of your children.